Amen. Good morning. Good morning. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Do I have a witness now? You know, now we're not all in the same house, but by the miracle of technology that the Lord, I'm sure, knew long time ago, we are able to be together by His Spirit, in His Spirit, together this morning. So grateful for that, so thankful. I, I often have said these last days, where would we be? Where would we be if we had not had the opportunities technologically to stream these broadcasts out to where you all are, but then also to get responses back from, uh, we, we hear from all over the world, literally, of how the Lord is is encouraging his people and instructing us. And then when we are blessed to get to see each other a little more, we're inching back a little bit at a time here in San Antonio. And more and more of these, uh, the, these long, empty pews are beginning to be filled back up again. It's, that's a good thing. We continue to pray for the health of our city, of our state, of our nation, praying that the Lord will give our leadership uh, wisdom as to what we are to do, and praying that we as individuals will be responsive to how the Lord prompts us to wear those masks and space ourselves out and wash our hands, whatever the things would be that, that we need to individually be doing. We it's this important time to come under authority, folks. You know, we tell our kids, now you need to mind me. And then we spend our time griping about the ones in authority over us as adults. That you reap what you sow, and I just, that, this, that, I'm just kind of throwing this in. This, isn't, this is for free. This wasn't where we're headed this morning. But, but that's important, and we need to pray for those in authority over us as the Scripture has instructed that we do, and then do our very best to follow the Lord's leadership as it would even be worked out through them, which is what... Authority is supposed to be about in Romans 13 and other places. Well, good morning. I, I didn't mean to get off in all that. I'm just, I'm just still kind of having to get used to seeing people in this room. You know, I've been, I've been preaching to two or three of us for these last few weeks, and and uh, but knowing that you all are out there, believing that you're out there, we hear back from you, and that means a lot. Would you let me pray for us, and then we'll open the scripture together. Lord, we need your presence. Thank you for your word. But we need you by your wonderful presence to cause your word to just be set on fire in our hearts. Would you open our minds to understand? But would you, Lord, prepare our hearts to receive what you want to say to us today? We pray for the outpouring of your spirit on the preacher, Lord. But we pray for the outpouring upon your spirit of your spirit upon everyone who is listening right now and those who will be listening in the coming days to what you want to say to us today. The way through. How, Lord, you take us through. Speak to us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The way through. The way through. The way through through. Sometimes, and it seems like maybe it's, it's more often than not, that instead of us, instead of the Lord just, just doing a SEAL Team 6 snatch, you know, and just coming in and just snatching us out of something, out of trouble, and out of things that would be confusing. It seems as if 
So often the Lord's plan is to take us through it, to take us through it. So how does he take us through things that may not be pleasant to our flesh, easy for us to go through? How does the Lord take us through? I want us to spend some time this morning. I pray you will be able to just settle into this with me. Two categories of the way through. The way through, first, the storms of resistance. The storms of resistance. And then secondly, the way through, the sting of rejection. The sting of rejection. Now there's hope. There's hope. Wouldn't be bringing those categories up if we weren't headed for hope. So don't anybody get depressed just at the mention of the title because there's hope in Jesus. Now may the God of hope fill you up with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 I want you to find um, a passage in your New Testament that you may not have looked at in a while, may have never read this. Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23 and verse 11. These are some events in the life of the Apostle Paul, and this is an encounter that he has with Jesus, with the living Jesus, beyond the Damascus Road experience. And here's what it says. Acts chapter 23, verse 11. But on the night immediately following, after Paul had been interrogated, accused, spoken against by authorities in Jerusalem, on the night immediately following, look at this, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly testified to my cause At Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. So you must witness at Rome also. Encouragement just in the reading of that verse. The Lord came out of heaven, made his presence known to the Apostle Paul such that it was written. As as Paul told Luke, and Luke would write this down, Luke, I'm telling you, the Lord showed up in my room, or wherever Paul was, and the Lord stood at my side, and he said something to me. Folks, can we just be wide open to the fact, to the honest truth, the biblical fact, that the Lord is not even this day limited to the confines of heaven, locked off way away somewhere distant from us. That when you need to feel his presence, when he needs for you to hear something from him, he has the opportunity, he has the capability of showing up where you are and speaking something to your heart that you need to know. Now, I, I, I don't believe Scripture is still being written, but I do believe the Lord is still speaking. That the Lord, I hadn't found San Antonio yet in the Bible, have you? I, I haven't found Texas in the Bible, but there are some specific ways that the Lord has led many of us to somehow know we were supposed to be in San Antonio, Texas. 
that we were supposed to be from one place and in this place. Yes, the Lord still speaks to his people. Yes, the Lord still has a way of showing up, as we say, when we need to sense his presence. So that's what happened with Paul. And that's an example for us. This is how the Lord can work with his people and in his church. But there's an instruction that the Lord gives Paul. You must witness at Rome also. We'll turn a couple pages over to chapter 27, Acts chapter 27. Paul has, has given, uh, his, presented his case before the authorities. The, the Jewish leadership was, was, was so hostile toward him. They were accusing him of, of a variety of things that would result in, in the Roman authorities feeling like they had to come and do something with Paul. And it was a statute in Roman law that any citizen of Rome, of which Paul was, he was Jewish, but he was also a Roman citizen. And at any point in time, when a, when a Jewish or Roman citizen was tried, accused, put on trial, that, that, that citizen could appeal to Caesar to be heard by the emperor, a personal appearance before Caesar in Rome. And that is what Paul ended up doing that I, I appeal to Caesar. And it is said in, in the verses right before chapter 27 that, that Her Agrippa said to Festus, this is that last verse, verse 32, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But somehow in Paul's mind from the time that the Lord said, you're going to testify of me in Rome, Paul knew that's where he was supposed to go. That's where he would be. And that if getting to Rome by way of appealing to Caesar was his bus ticket to Rome, that he was going to take it. Even if it meant that he was going to be going as a prisoner of the state, he was willing to go in that, in that way. So, so here we have Paul with the assignment to go to Rome, to be in Rome. The Lord is sending him there to be a witness of Jesus in Rome. But then we start the process of getting toward Rome and we begin to realize that there's resistance along the way. There, there is resistance for Paul to get to Rome. Now, stay with me. We're going somewhere with this. Chapter 27, when it was decided that we should set sail for Italy, the, the we here means Luke is along uh, for the journey. Some passages don't, he's saying they or he but in these, in these we passages, as scholars refer to them, it means that Luke is right there with Paul. When decided that we should set sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, a Roman officer named Julius. So they're, they're trying to get on the boat to start the journey to Rome. Verse 3, the next day we, we put in at Sidon. And they sailed for a while, verse 4, under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. The winds were against. Now, this was not, we didn't have diesel or gasoline, you know, motors for these boats. It was, it was only by the power of the wind or power by manpower with oars. But mainly it was trying to catch a favorable wind. But this is stated here, the shelter of Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. They, they made their way on in verse 5 to the land at Myra in Lycia. Centurion found 
Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, so they put aboard it. Verse 7, and when we had sailed slowly for a good many days, we had a contrary wind to start with. Now, now they're just making very little progress. Sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived at Nidus. Since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salon, or Salmon, excuse me. And with difficulty, sailing past it, we came to a certain place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. And when considerable time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast, uh, the Day of Atonement, in the fall was already over, Paul began to admonish them. And he said to the men, I, I perceive that the voyage will be certainly difficult, tended with, with, with damage and, and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached the decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, the harbor of Crete. Let me just stop right there. Who do you think was behind the stormy winds on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus would tell the disciples, I'll meet you on the other side? You head that way, you head out, and I'll meet you on the other side. Only for the disciples to be met with these ferocious winds that could, if they were left unchecked, could literally have, have sunk the boat and even drowned the men. Who was behind that? Who was trying to snuff out the lives of the followers of Jesus? Well, certainly it wasn't the Holy Breath, the Holy Spirit of God, but the prince of the power of the air, Satan, another name for the devil. Satan is not omnipotent. He does not have all power. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere all at the same time. Those are characteristics unique only the one true to the one true and living God. But he does have some measure of jurisdiction on planet Earth. He does have the ability to stir some things up in the realm of the Earth. And if he knows, when he knows that God has a plan, and he somehow figures out some dimension of what that plan is going to be, he becomes an expert at trying to thwart the plan of God, to hinder the plan of God. He's not some benign force. He, he, he's a personality, and he has the ability to exert authority over those that would be under his command. And when there is someone like the Apostle Paul that he knew that Paul walked in the anointing of the Spirit of God. He, he had a measure of authority upon him because of his surrender to the Lord. If, if, if the devil could have kept Paul in Israel, he could have spared the rest of the Roman Empire of being impacted by that man and his message and his power in the name of Jesus. So it stands to reason that from the get-go, when the news was out that Paul was going to Rome, the enemy would want to try to stop him from getting to Rome because that would be a position that would be widely influential. Paul would write later at the end of one of his letters, even those, 
of Caesar's household greet you. In other words, as time went on and Paul stayed in Rome and his influence was to be felt, that there were those even in the royal family who had come under the influence of the gospel, had come to know Christ as Savior, and they considered themselves a part of the church of Jesus. Even those of Caesar's household greet you. Oh, if the devil could have shut him down, kept, kept Paul from getting out, of, get, getting out of Jerusalem, getting out of Israel, getting out of Asia Minor, if he could have kept him away, he would have kept him away. But he couldn't. He just kept trying to throw hindrances, throw hindrances and slow things down. Now, here, here's where we're headed with this, folks. If the Lord has put something in your heart, if God has established a goal, a mission for your life, maybe it's a dream. Maybe it's a longing. Maybe there's some sort of a passion within you to see something happen that is beyond what you could do on your own but would be to the Lord's glory and would re require his power to have it happen. Then don't be surprised that if it's really from God, the enemy is going to try to blow it back in your face. He's going to try to stir up and generate some contrary winds. And this gives us the understanding that he won't just do it one day. He won't just do it with one trip. He will relentlessly set himself to try to shut you down, stop you, hinder you, so that you'll just eventually think about, well, this isn't worth it. I think I'll just quit, just give up. Well, so we continue. We continue. The storms of resistance. How do we get through the storms of resistance? Verse 14. Not very long, but before very long, verse 14, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Eurachio. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. That they couldn't tack into the wind. They couldn't make any headway. It was so strong, they, they just gave up, and the wind was blowing them. And running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control, probably the rudder. And after they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables and undergirding the ship, and fearing that they might run aground in the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor and so let themselves be driven along. The next day, they've been fighting this thing all night and all, but the next day as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. The crew began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days now, and no small storm was assailing us. From then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. And when they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. And yet now, I urge you to keep up your courage. 
For there shall be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who were sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. Now, what, 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 what kind of crazy man was Paul to think that in the middle of the storm, hair blown everywhere, the deck of the ship just rocking, probably the, the sails in tatters are about to be dragging this anchor as the wind's blowing the ship. And he stands up and says, take courage. I've heard from God. I've heard from an angel. And we will not be lost. And we will make it through. And I'm convinced that what I was told is going to happen. You be encouraged. Now, folks, what, what we need to lay hold of is this. If the, if the devil senses that the Lord is up to something with you, then it just needs to be a given that the enemy will try to counterpunch. The enemy will try to discourage. The enemy will try to short circuit and blow us off course. But the truth is, the Lord has the ability right down into the middle of the storm to cause his word and his heart to be known in the heart of his child so that his child is able to rise above even the overwhelming empirical data. We're lost. We're going down. But the Lord speaks to Paul, and Paul is able to say, No, we're not. No, we're not. It will turn out the way God says it turns out. Devil, you blow until you're out of breath. You run and throw everything you've got to throw. But in the end, God is bigger than you. The Lord will win the day. The Lord will do what he has purposed to do with our lives. Sometimes, sometimes in the storms, when we hadn't heard from the Lord maybe in a while, since the storm started, we take from this example permission Lord, have you got something you need to say to me? Everybody else says we're going down. Everything looks like it's over. Is there something that you need for this sheep to hear from my shepherd? My sheep, he said, hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. They follow me because they've heard my voice. They understand what I want them to do. And they've got the ability to stay the course as they follow me. Amen. So if you're in the middle of something and resistance is upon you, is pushing back against you, it may be of varying degrees of small, just, just, just small stuff to step over all the way to where now that Luke will say, it is a violent storm against a bent upon our destruction. To know that in that place, you're not there because it's your fault. 
You're not there because it's something that you did other than trying to follow the Lord. And I want to suggest to you that if you're in the middle of a storm and it's, it's taking things beyond your control, instead of the thought of giving up on God and what have I done to mess my life up so much, you need to just turn in the direction of the devil and just say, devil, thank you for the amen. Thank you for the amen. You wouldn't be so worried about this if what God's called me to do isn't important. You wouldn't be stirring up all this trouble if it wasn't because you know that when I get to where God wants me to be, all heaven is going to break loose. And the kingdom of darkness is going to be shredded. And lost folks are going to be found. And good news is going to break forth. Thank you, devil, for saying amen to the work of God. Now, some folks would say, that's, that's, you crazy as a loon if you talk like that. But those who would understand, no. Jesus is a specialist in the storm. Jesus doesn't have all of his hair perfectly in place. He didn't he didn't walk this earth without smudges and dirt and calluses on his hands and, and, and stuff on his clothes. He understands real people. And he understands real storms. And he knows how to come to us in the storm. And if he's not coming to us, he knows how to speak to us. He knows how to speak to us. All right, so there Paul went off on him. And then you'll come back and say, you need to eat. You hadn't eaten in 14 days hardly. And this, this ride's fixing to come to an end. And you need to eat for your strength. And he broke bread, got something to eat. Storm howling, all these days blown, who knows where they were. It seemed like God was saying, Rome, Rome, God did say Rome, but they're headed the opposite direction. I mean, it's like in the middle of this storm, everything went the opposite direction. But it was not too big. It was not beyond the hands of Almighty God to take that boat and to take those people on that boat and get them safely to land and get Paul where he needed to be. Just because the devil blows up, just because the devil vomits all over everything, just because he tries to bring opposition does not mean that you're not where you're supposed to be. It may again be proof that you're exactly where you're supposed to be. The Lord doesn't cause the storms. The Lord calms the storms, and the Lord, the Lord gets us through the storms. And we come out the other side praising him. Lord, I mean, isn't it about the devil just did everything? I've never seen stuff like that come loose. But Lord, look, here I am sucking air, and my eyes are upon you. I can blink. I can see. i got legs. I hadn't drowned. I can look back and see the storm in the rearview mirror. Lord, you're awesome. You're awesome. And folks, listen, I, I believe that the ones that the devil and the powers of darkness fear the most in the church are not those who have a brain stuffed with untested scripture where they've got all kinds of information, but they've never been tested deeply in the storms of life. But when there are those who have been tested in those ways like Paul, and a, and a hurricane of opposition is thrown your way, 
But instead of giving up on the Lord and checking out on his call, you just hunker down and you stand right there. You just stay right there. And you know you keep doing the last thing you Lord, the Lord told you to do, and that was to be on that boat and headed out. And as he brings you through the storm, you're able to look back and see that the best that the devil could do didn't work. It didn't steal my faith. It did, did not destroy my dream. It's still there. It's operating. And I just want more of you, Lord. More of you. More of you. More of you. When the enemy runs into somebody like that, he knows it's another whole level than just finding somebody else. I'm gonna, he, all he has to do is threaten you. And we spook. Well, if you go that direction, it may cost you this. Or if you, if you do this, that, that, may, that may not work out like you want. Or if you do that, it may trouble the waters. Somebody who has been down the road with Jesus, walking the, with the real Jesus, not the phony American kind of Jesus that's plastic and everything all figured out and all with the square edges and so forth, but the real Jesus, who's the Lord of the storms, He'll call you into a place that's impossible. He'll call you into a place that you can't swim your way out of. He's the only one who can deliver you. And he takes you there and you go through it and you come through it and you realize you're alive. It didn't destroy you. That he showed you things about his love for you that he wasn't going to fail you. He wasn't going to drop you. So bring on the hurricanes. My God is the God over a hurricane. And there's a rest in your heart that no matter what comes, Jesus is Lord. No matter what comes, he's with me. He's able. He's not shaken. He has all authority. Uh, those are the kind of folks I want praying for me. Those are the kind of folks I want exhorting me. When stuff gets tough and things you can't figure out, I don't want somebody who never got a scab on his knee, who never got a callus on his hand. He's just been sitting around just saying spiritual stuff and singing spiritual songs. Grow up, you know. Let the Lord take you through some places. And in those impossible, hard, stormy places, you'll find him speaking to you You'll find him drawing near to you. You'll find him taking authority over the circumstances such that you are not destroyed and annihilated in the way that an enemy would want it to be. Let me catch my breath. Oh, it's so important. Why do you think Paul was able to keep going? It's because he loved to know Jesus in the power of his resurrection. He loved to see Jesus' power expressed. And that was happening in this setting. So, okay, so we get on through this. Let, let me, let's read, let's get down at verse 41. This is uh, Acts 27, verse 41. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners on the boat, that none of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest should follow some on planks and others on various things from the ship. 
And thus it happened that they all were brought safely to land. Verse 37, we find Luke recorded that there were 276 people on the boat. All right, now find, I want you to look at the last two verses in the book of Acts. At the end of chapter 28, look at verse 30. And he, speaking of Paul, stayed two full years in his own rented quarters, where? In Rome. In Rome. And was welcoming all who came to him. Look at this. Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. The devil's worst nightmare. That the apostle Paul, anointed with heaven's power, would be planted in the imperial city and he would be given freedom to preach the kingdom of God, lifting up the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he would be able to do it with all openness and unhindered. Let me give you a few things about how the Lord gets us through the storms of resistance. Number one, the storm is not your fault, it's just the devil's amen. The storm is not your fault. Following Jesus, following the dream, pursuing what you feel like he's put in your heart, the storm is not your fault. Sometimes we get in that place of thinking, I'm in all this trouble, so I must have done something wrong. Sometimes that can be the case, but here's what will happen. The Spirit of the Lord Jesus will cause you to know what you and I have done that has caused there to be consequences upon our actions. But his desire is not for us to stay in a pit, but to give us steps of confession and repentance to climb up out of that pit. But when we ask the Lord, Lord, is this coming because of something that I've done? And the answer, there's nothing that he convicts us of, then it must be that you are right where the Lord wants you to do, wants you to be, and the devil is mad. The devil is worried. Satan is upset about it. And he's trying to fight against the plan of God. If you take it as the devil's, amen. Thank you, devil. Thank you, devil. All hell is breaking loose. But I believe I'm where God wants me to be. I sense his presence. And I'm not budging. I'm staying on course. And I'm taking the opposition as an amen from the devil. Number two, the storm is not canceling God's plan. The storm will serve to confirm his plan. Just because there's troubled water doesn't mean that Jesus can't get the boat to the other side. If it need be that the sea be calmed, the ocean, the the lake, the Sea of Galilee be calmed in order for the boat to cross, he's able to do that. There's nothing in the power of Satan that has the ability ultimately to cancel the plan of God for your life. It will just simply confirm his plan. I hinted on that a minute ago. When we go through what we go through, but instead of us wanting to give up, 
we come through it with even more conviction in our heart that that's the right thing to believe. That's the right thing to pursue. That if, if, if I go down, I'm going to go down believing. If I go down, the last words on my breath are going to be, I believe the Lord wants this to be done and me to pursue it and me to chase it and a dream that can be had in the power of the Lord. Amen. It's not canceling God's plan. It's confirming his plan. Third, the storm will not take you away from him. The storm is not taking you away from him. It is pressing you into him. Amen. It's not pulling me away. It's just pressing me in. Fourthly, the storm will not drown out his voice. The storm will be the microphone shouting his voice. It seems to be extremely contradictory. But so often the Lord teaches us things by putting us in, allowing us to be in places of contradiction. Where there is where it would seem as if everything is in upheaval, for in that place the Lord to speak to his child, I've got this. You trust me and you hold on. Trust me and hold on. His voice can be heard. We're going to touch a moment on this matter of rejection, but I'm going to just tell you, sometimes the place, is, the place that's most suited for you to hear, the most designed in a sense for you to hear God's love for you, that he loves you, can be in the place where it seems like everybody and their dog and cat has rejected you, where everybody's walked away from you. And then there's this striking, unsettling other voice that says, I love you. I chose you. I picked you out. I wanted you. The places of contradiction. So sometimes hearing his voice of peace, his voice of calm, his voice of direction, his voice of reassurance may come to us in the middle of a storm that seems like it's destroying everything. So what does it mean? We start listening. If we know that that's how it can work, instead of us just looking down or just talking to people, we got to find us a quiet place and just be quiet and say, Lord, is there anything you want to say to me? Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Remember little, little, little Samuel in Eli's household. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And then the last point on this would be, the storm is not where the devil wins. The storm is where Jesus proves his word is true. When you have a word from the Lord that is in your heart, alive in your heart, and it seems to be confirmed but that, that even in the middle of the storm, the richness of that word, the, the truth of that word isn't taken. It's as if the longer the storm lasts, the more convinced you are that God has spoken. That's the work of the Spirit. And he uses the storm as the setting for which his word is proven true. All right? So the way 
the way through the storm, the storm of resistance, the storm of resistance. Let's shift and let's talk about the way through the sting of rejection, the sting of rejection. I want you to find your way to the book of Genesis, first book in the Bible that ought to be easy enough for all of us to locate, Genesis. From chapter 37 all the way through to chapter 50 in Genesis, it is the account of the life and times of that man named Joseph. Thirteen chapters of the Bible devoted to primarily the life, the circumstances, the situations in the life of the man named Joseph. If there is any person in Scripture other than Jesus who is the expression of what rejection can look like and feel like and cause, it's Joseph. It's Joseph. Now, I want you to, we can't read all of this, but I do feel like there are certain portions of this story in his life that, that we need to look at again. And what we're talking about is the way through the pain of rejection. In chapter 37, verse 2, it says, Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, 17 years of age. All right, turn over to verse 18, same chapter. When they, his brothers, saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits and we'll say to daddy, a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this, one of the brothers heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Verse 23, so it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, that coat of many colors, the favored child status in a sense. He was the youngest of all of them. He was the, the child of his daddy's old age, as could be said. The very colored tunic that was on him. Verse 24, and they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty without any water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by. So they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Sold their baby brother. 
sold their baby brother into slavery for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they, the Ishmaelites, or Midianites, brought, brought Joseph into Egypt. Verse 31. So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat, dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it's your son's tunic or not. Then he, the old daddy Jacob, examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Verse 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer and captain of the bodyguard. It's one thing to face rejection from folks who just don't like you and they don't want to be around you. It's another thing to be rejected by people powerful enough that they could kill you. And if they don't kill you, then they could sell you. And so distorted and cold would their hearts be that your earthly father would be told, left with the, with the supposition that you were killed by a wild beast and you're gone. That the, taking away from your earthly father even the thought that you could be seen again. When that begins to drop down in our hearts, the, the coldness, the hardness of these brothers toward this younger brother. It's stunning. It's stunning. But here's the deal. Their estimation of Joseph was not God's estimation of Joseph. Turn, turn over to um, verse, chapter 39. Chapter 39. So Joseph has been sold into slavery. Potiphar has bought him. But look at verse 2, 39. And the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. I thought he was a slave. He became a successful man as a servant, a successful man, if you will, using the Bible term, words, as a slave, a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now the master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned he put in his charge. And it came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned to Joseph's charge. And with him, there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and Potiphar's wife came on to him, went after him, that story ended badly. 
He rejected her advances. She turned on him, accused him of coming after her. The husband heard about it. The husband had the slave, had the Hebrew young man who, who had no, uh, no inheritance in the land, no family in the land, no, no background in the land, had him thrown into the king's prison. All right, but before we get there, I want you to look at this, this verse again that will be, be repeated about Joseph even after he's in jail. Verse 4, Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant, and he made him to oversee his house and all that he owned. It came about that from the time he made him overseer over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Folks, listen. You, You don't need to be saying, I work for the sorriest scumbags on the face of the earth. They are lowlifes, they cheat, they steal, they whatever. Did you know that God has the ability just because of his love for you and just because of his favor that he can place upon you, that he can cause even the godless to prosper because of his blessing on you? That's Joseph. So stop saying this. I just need to work for a Christian company. That may be the worst answer to prayer that you ever get. So-called Christians can lie and cheat and be unfaithful and do all kinds of stuff. Don't give me somebody who's got Christian all across his chest. Show me somebody who operates that way in the way he does business and the way he handles people. Let, let the actions speak louder than the words. But even if it is a difficult place, even if it is a pagan place, even if it is a place that where you're in servitude, God has the ability to place his favor upon you. So that even though your family rejected you, here's evidence God hasn't rejected you because he blesses the work of your hands. Here's what the Lord will do. He will offer other voices. He will provide other means of of information and data and proof to show you that he hasn't left you, that he hasn't rejected you, that he still has a plan of greatness and delight for you. Even though back over here, They're still saying, sure glad he's dead and gone. Sure glad we'll never see him again. But the Lord's hand of prospering you in the place where you've landed because you're trusting him and you're turning away from the things, the options that the world would give. And he is supernaturally blessing the work of your hand. He gave Joseph the ability to figure out how to, how to handle problems that would be frustrating to the, the head of the household, but also the jailer. Now, look, look, over, at the, look over what happened. So, he, you know, he gets thrown out of the house where they've given him everything, and he's accused falsely. <laughs> now he's thrown in jail. Look, this is chapter 39, verse 20. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail. But the Lord, verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. And the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Whatever he did in his slave master's house, the Lord made it prosper. 
Whatever he did in the jail where he was locked up, the Lord made to prosper. Oh, folks, one of the ways that the Lord takes us through these tough places where there is the sting of rejection is that he methodically will show you in tangible ways his love for you, his ability to prosper you, his ability to bless you and cause the work of your hands to be applauded and to be responded, even though the folks back here haven't seen it, could care less about it. But where you are right now is in the place of the favor of the Lord. It is the place where God has the ability to bless you, even though ones around you don't even know his name. He had the ability to bless that Egyptian's household because he was blessing Joseph. Oh, my goodness. Let that in, folks. Let that in. Sometimes we, we get so stuck back here with, with, with what folks have said and we, we didn't live up to their expectations, etc., etc., that there's all this data coming in of how the Lord has blessed. The Lord is fav- has favored. It, it, it may be financially, but it may be intellectually, academically, maybe socially. There's this other whole stream, this other whole set of voices and fresh information that are counter to what has been said over here. Where is this coming from today? Where are the blessings upon your life coming from today? They're coming from the Lord who loves you. The Lord who hadn't quit on his plan for you. You read on through and you find, you know, that eventually, because Joseph can interpret a dream, he was remembered as being one who could interpret dreams, that he's called to Pharaoh's side to interpret Pharaoh's dream. He goes from the jailhouse to the penthouse, is another way to say, to the, to the throne room. Overnight, overnight, God changed everything. And he interpreted Pharaoh's dream. And Pharaoh said, in effect, we need someone to implement these things you've described, and Joseph, you're the man. And he was named second in command to the Egyptian Pharaoh in those days. Well, time passes. Famine breaks out in Israel. Jacob, the older father, the old father, sends his sons to buy food from Egypt because they had heard that Egypt had stuff, had food. It was because of Joseph's implementation of the plan God gave him. Seven years of fat years would be prepared for, prepared for the seven years of lean years. But during the seven lean years, what had been gleaned in the, in the fat years could be sold. And the, and the kingdom, the Pharaoh's rule, would prosper even during the years of, of, of famine. So here come Joseph's brothers. And they show up in Egypt. You remember the, the story? They come into, Pharaoh's, into Joseph's presence, and they don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. He meets their need. He gives to them what they came to buy, but things progressed, and eventually he tells them who he is. They bring the daddy there, and so the whole clan has moved to Egypt. But let me read. This is the last chapter of the book of Genesis in verse 15. Chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay us back in full 
for all the wrong which we did to him. They had not forgotten it. Life hadn't gone on for them, at least in every way. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. For I am I in God's place, and as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. Now look at these last words. Look, look, look at this next sentence. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The brothers who had hatched a plot to rid the earth of Joseph. They lied to their daddy about his demise and where he was, sold him into slavery, but in the place where they sent him, God prospered him, prospered him greatly. Abraham Lincoln, who's quoted a lot these days, and he ought to be, made the comment, I defeat my enemies when I make them my friends. Somewhere in there, the power to defeat rejection is contained in the power of mercy. You will know, you will know that rejection has lost its control. It may not be completely gone. The memories not, may not be complete. But rejection's ability to own you, to shut you down, to drag you away, to paralyze you, has lost its power when instead of revenge... Instead of staying away, mercy rides up toward the very ones who maybe even certainly in Joseph's case viciously rejected you. Oh, now, where in the world is that going to come from? Stay with me. Where in the world is that going to come from? I want to show you two places in the New Testament where there is the healing for rejection. The first one is in Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. Let me start reading. Paul says to believers in Jesus, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. You have received a spirit of adoption as children 
of the Lord. What does it mean to be adopted? It means the opposite of being rejected. When someone is adopted, that child is wanted. It was not just the luck of the draw, the product of of a male and female. When there is an adoption, it means the adoptive parent wants the child, sees a future and a hope for the child, wants to invest in the child wants to raise the child as his own. The shout of the spirit of adoption has the ability to numb the effect of the shouts of rejection. It's a louder voice. It needs to be a louder voice. But look, now that, that's whereby we cry, Abba, Father. But look at this, Galatians chapter 4. Paul is still on it. This is Galatians 4 verse 6. And because you were sons... God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. Oh, listen. The antidote to the cries of rejection is the cry of the spirit of adoption, Abba, Father. Not just that we cried, but Paul deepens that. It's going to be the voice of the Spirit rising up, the Spirit of Jesus coming out of us. When we're rejected here, discounted there, those voices seem to fade into the distant distance and past when there is working inside of us, and it's in the present active indicative tense, crying in our hearts, the Spirit of His Son sent into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That is a term of the closest endearment of a child to a father. You, 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 you call him Abba, Father, because you feel the love. You know his love. You sense his embrace of you, his desire of you. And as that spirit, that's one of the works of the spirit filling us, is that he fills us to the point of pushing back the spirit of rejection and causing the spirit of adoption, I belong, I'm wanted, I'm kept, I've been chosen, I have a place, I'm not ever going to be rejected, I won't ever be thrown out of the Father's house, I am my Father's son, and if I'm my Father's son, I'm also a joint heir with his firstborn son, Jesus. Now do you see, you see how the devil so much wants to keep us in the place of being victims of rejection and not learning that place of praying, Lord Jesus, fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your spirit. Fill me. The spirit, what type? Spirit of adoption. It causes me to know I'm loved. causes me to know I'm wanted. causes me to know the most powerful being and most wonderful being in all of the universe loves me, wants me, has promised never to leave me or forsake me. That gets to drop in 18 inches, and it won't matter who says they can't stand you and never want to see you again and wish you'd never been a part of their lives. It's a bigger voice. It's a bigger voice. I got to tell you one story. I'll try to do it quick. About the power of rejection to paralyze a life and to cause that life 
to not be able to go on with its destiny. A weekend or so ago, Shirley and I were riding out on in some of that ranch country that you guys have been with us on, and we had our little grandson, Blanton. He's, he's four years old. We were riding in a little UTV thing, and one to open, no window here, no doors, just, just going along. It's getting dark. Headlights, just starting to use them. We're on a cleachy road. Look out in front about 30 yards, and I see this, this black wad on the cleachy. I immediately thought, well, that's a tarantula. We have them down there. And I wanted to show Blanton one of those up close and personal. That, that's what a grandfather needs to do with a grandson, I, I suppose. But anyway, it was just in me to do. Now, we have some down there that can be six or seven inches across, wingtip to wingtip. This one, this one was maybe, maybe four inches across. But something about it was weird. It didn't look right. So I stopped just a few feet away and got out and walked up there. And in the headlights, I looked down, and I saw that it wasn't just a tarantula. There was something else there next to the tarantula. And it was, the, it was a wasp or a hornet the size of which I'd never seen. It was two, probably going on three inches long. And it was dragging that tarantula that was several times its size, dragging it across the road, going somewhere with it. So the tarantula's limbs, they were shriveled up, but you, it was getting drugged. So we, we got out, a little Blanton comes up, and he starts looking at it, and that, that, that wasp or hornet or saw him approach, and left the tarantula and started coming at him. So we backed away and, you know, and we, it was a life form, you know, a couple of life forms. I, so I, I just, I left them alone. We didn't do anything about it. Just about came, what in the world was that about? So I went back and got to digging around, doing, doing a little bit of research, came up with the name of something. Anybody know what I'm fixing to call that wasp? A tarantula, a tarantula hawk, a tarantula hawk. You look it up in Wikipedia, and it's a fascinating story. It is a type of, of, of wasp. They call it in, in the category of a spider wasp. But what it will do is that it'll go over to where a tarantula lives, and it'll tap on the door or do something, and the tarantula will come out. And when the tarantula comes out within range, the wasp crawls up under, gets up under the wasp, and stings or tarantula and stings the tarantula in the stomach. It paralyzes the tarantula. The tarantula is still alive, but it's paralyzed. And then the wasp, the tarantula hawk has already prepared a hole big enough to put the tarantula in. So what we saw that night was the tarantula hawk dragging the tarantula to its pre-designed uh, place of burial over here. And once the tarantula gets put in the hole, the wasp gets on top of it and lays an egg for baby wasps. And when the baby wasps are born, they eat the tarantula. Go figure. Now here's the point. You say, what, preacher, what was the purpose of that? Here's the purpose of that. It is the power of rejection to paralyze a living soul. Satan 
as long as he can use rejection. Maybe it's the felt rejection of father, of friends, of family, of coaches, of whatever. As long as Satan can use the sting of rejection, he can paralyze you. He can shut you down. That that tarantula could have gotten away from that wasp if it hadn't been stung. But because it was stung, and we're going to say with rejection, it was paralyzed. And the enemy, its enemy, the enemy of its could take it wherever he wanted it to go. How sad it is when we see that in our own lives. Some, something comes up, some memory comes up, somebody shows up, some face shows up, and it's almost as if all of a sudden we are shot at the heart. Folks, you're not supposed to live that way. You don't have to live that way. In the place of the spirit of rejection is the spirit of adoption. When you feel those things coming at you, when you sense that stuff beginning to try to take root in your heart again, as a child of God, as a believer in Jesus, start crying out, Jesus, fill me. Jesus, fill me. Fill me with your spirit of adoption, whereby you inside me are crying out, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. There's medicine, there's medicine, there's an antidote for the spirit of rejection. You don't have to live there. And the living presence of Jesus inside you operating has the ability to neuter the effect of rejection by his life, by his spirit, by his power. Okay, we better quit. I've kept you long today. You just... I just, this is just so true and it's just so good and it's so right and there's so much freedom in this. I can't hardly stop. There's hope. There's hope. You don't have to stay buried under the rejected looking on the, on the faces of folks and, and the memories of things you don't. And we don't have to stay afraid of storms as if they're our own fault. The Lord uses the storms to show us more of himself. The Lord uses storms to cause us to have more of a sense of victory and confidence. No matter what I'm going through, Jesus is Lord over it, in it, through it, and I'm with him, and he's not going to leave me in the lurch. Amen. Lord, would you take your word, would you take your word and press it into our spirits? Cause your word to be living inside us. Cause our hearts to be reaching out. Lord, make it real in me. Make it real in me. Make it real in me. Please, please, Lord, don't let this be just a turning off of a switch, getting away from a TV or a laptop or a phone and going on down the road as if nothing happened. Lord, I ask you to cause the truth that has been spoken that your folks have heard this morning, I ask you to cause it to burn in our hearts, to stay in our hearts and not easily be rejected or ignored. Cause us to know you, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. Cause us to know you in the ways that we've talked about this day and more. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 You are an awesome group to preach to, even those of you I can't see. But those who are here, thank you for being a part of the Alamo family today, the streaming family and those right here in the house. God bless you. God bless you. Amen.